Hey, it's Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. With all change, but particularly social change, comes risk and pushback. The risks borne by the people driving change on the ground and participating in our democratic processes cannot be overstated. To get a personal view beyond the talking points, I'm joined by George Smitherman, CEO and President of the Cannabis Council of Canada, former Deputy Premier of Ontario, and a politician known for his unconventional candor. George and I reflect on the progress and challenges ahead for the legal cannabis sector as it turns three years old. We also discuss his experiences as the first openly gay member of the Ontario Legislature, as an Ontario Minister of Health prohibited from donating blood, as well as the increasing violence in politics. Nobody expects social change or democracy to be easy, but have the personal costs we ask of our leaders gone too far? Thank you for joining me, George, and welcome to At Risk. Oh, thanks. It's my great pleasure. <laughs> well, happy anniversary. Yes, it's uh, it's really uh, is 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 pretty striking what's occurred in three years. As a as a consumer of cannabis, I could say especially. Well, for sure, and I guess the birthday present that comes with uh, this three year anniversary is a legislative review. What are your hopes and concerns associated with this upcoming review? The I think that the uh, hopes of most in the industry or the sector, uh, the expectations are kind of high because uh, it's pretty challenging out there. I tell anyone that'll listen that the cannabis industry, not for the faint of heart. And I think that the concern is that uh, internally at Health Canada, their view about things is that uh, it's a nothing burger. It's going great, two thumbs up, fine tuning, inside review, et cetera. So I think kind of a little bit of a process answer in a certain sense, but what I'm a little bit, a little bit worried about is that the expectations of a sector in an industry to properly reflect on, hey, and a community. I mean, cannabis isn't just a business. It's, it's a community. It's special in that sense is after three years, people really want to reflect back and say, hey, how are we doing on a number of fronts? And I think internally, uh, at least at the staff level at Health Canada, the view is, hey, this is uh, not, not, not too much to see here, folks. This is going great. And that really kind of belies some of the reality that people are facing out there in the, in the real world of cannabis legalization. But I don't want to lose sight of the, I don't want to lose sight of the circumstances that are out there for consumers because uh, it, uh, you know, it, it, it really has emerged to be uh, quite a, quite a panacea of, uh, of really high quality, innovative products, I think. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there is a lot of uh, commentary around the industry struggling with uh, price compression. For example, you know, many of the companies uh, are experiencing negative margins. Um, but I don't think the economic performance of the sector is necessarily within sight of this review. The thing about it is statutory review that's really in a certain sense you're right like and actually that identifies one of the biggest problems that we've got i'm going to say kind of in ottawa 
Um, nobody's got an economic pur purview. A Health Canada tells, tells us kind of to our face, hey, remember, we don't have an economic lens on any of this stuff. Yeah, but you're the regulator and every Friday you're issuing more licenses. So isn't that a bit of a disconnect? And so certainly they're looking at the statutory review, review uh, framed in, say, a relatively narrow context um, and where economics hardly come into hardly come into play. And I think that's really out of step with the reality, which is the excise tax is a central construct to the whole thing. And it's not performing as it was uh, predicted, not in the least. And uh, that's a real that's a real challenge. So, yeah, that's a little bit what we face. So I just say to people is, yes, Health Canada can say, well, that's not part of the narrow confines of the statutory review. But that doesn't mean that we can't uh, seek to set the public agenda in Ottawa and expect that the broader government of Canada would respond to the challenges that we face as an industry because in fact, and a sector, because in fact, a, that, that the deference to health Canada in Ottawa on the cannabis file is it's, it's really stifling us. It's, it means that a broad array of government departments are deferring and in some cases practicing discriminatory policies towards our sector and not abiding it or affording it or respecting it or giving the entrepreneurs in the space the support that other sectors alongside do. That really hits at the nub of it, Jody, is that the, the, from Health Canada's standpoint, the statutory review is a fairly narrow exercise. Even there, though, uh, we, really, uh, uh, we, really, uh, uh, we, we really probably struggle with them around what narrow looks like, et cetera. So definitely that's what we've been facing at the bureaucratic level through the summer. So let's do a little bit of a level set, uh, and I'll put you a bit on the spot. But, you know, I remember looking at polling in 2019, um, a broad cross section of Canadians, and most Canadians just didn't know a lot about the cannabis sector. So how much does the sector roughly contribute in terms of tax revenues? Uh, and about how many people does the sector as a whole employ? It's it's hard to get a perfect wrap on any of those uh, numbers in an emerging uh, in an emerging sector, and frankly, one where there's so much change, both you know, toing and froing. Let's say on the employment front, but I think that uh, we could say re, uh, we could say uh, certainly that more than a billion dollars in excise taxes have now been contributed to national and especially especially provincial and territorial uh, territorial governments and employments. Uh, certainly, in the tens of tens of thousands, I would say. Uh, uh, about 50,000 uh, people directly employed in the in the sector. The combined contribution by GDP of the sector is approaching $20 billion. Some of that is an influence from the illicit uh, sector, which is significant enough that it gets captured in uh, the data. Uh, but uh, uh, I think those are all interesting points. I think that from a strategic standpoint for our industry, what I try to say to uh, people is, we have a very special strategic advantage if we choose to utilize it, which is that our licensees, now more than 700, are distributed very broadly across Canada. I'm not saying that they're distributed exactly equally, but some industries or sectors are quite uh, regional and ours is not as evident everywhere and has a strong potential to be an economic and social influencer everywhere. And I've really been spending a lot of time within the, the Cannabis Association 
encouraging advocacy and encouraging the development of frontline relationships. Uh, low, you know, all po- I'm a former politician. All politics is local is not a slogan that can be overused, in my opinion. You put a line on a map, you elect somebody within those lines, and they're very parochial naturally about what's going on in their area. And I think that with all those licensees, this is a special, uh, I think a special strategic strength that our industry is going to need to deploy, that our sector is going to need to develop more of those MP relationships so that we can get a broader hearing in Ottawa than just a Health Canada hearing. You mentioned the illicit market. Uh, Isn't that perhaps one potential avenue for how Uh, for an economic lens to enter the legislative review discussion, because that for sure, protecting public health and um, removing the illicit market was one of the stated goals of uh, legalization. Uh, How much does the illicit market still account for, for cannabis sales? And, you know, is there, is there further opportunity to do better as you see it? Oh, goodness. Yes. I mean, this is an area diverting hundreds of millions of, you know, possibly close to a billion dollars in uh, annual uh, excise uh, and other tax revenue away from government coffers. And at the same time means that the product that is being advanced to consumers is not tested. And we've seen uh, several recent studies uh, showing that when illicit product is tested, it's got all kinds of banned substances in it. And we've also seen studies that show that when kids are showing up in the emergency room, having been impacted by exposure to cannabis products and edibles, they're illicit market products. And I think that um, that's a really, really significant uh, policy uh, failure, as I said, and we give it a, it's it's an example of where we need other government departments uh, to be more proactive. And frankly, Health Canada has got a really strong contributor uh, to the illicit market problem, which is an out of out of control, uh, unpractically unregulated personal grow envi- you know, uh, personal grow uh, allowance for medicinal cannabis, which has been widely commented on for how porous it is. So yes, the you know, like I think this is if if we look back and said, oh well, after three years or after five years, a key reflection on how we're doing is how much of the market remains. Uh, uh, outside of the regulated parameters or what have you. And, you know, by all estimates, it's at least 50 by, and by health Canada, health Canada's own data, at least 50% of the uh, market remains outside of the regulated market. And uh, for reference sake, by the most recent monthly sales extrapolated on an annual basis, we're at a $4 billion annual recreational market run rate. So this tells you just how much business and just how much tax is being diverted on the other side of the line. And I would guess that the police are not the people to call because that was kind of one of the rationales behind legalizing cannabis was that we didn't want to uh, spend policing resources on uh, the illicit market any longer because it was essentially failing. I think that definitely we all seek to draw the focus away from police resources spent on simple possession and and, you know, and kind of ma and pa level activity. But the Ontario Provincial Police, as an example, if you look at the scale of the operations that they've taken down, tells you that these are significant criminal, 
these are significant criminal operators. And I think that that's really where police resources uh, uh, have increasingly been focused. And what we've been calling for, frankly, is uh, action to address this really crippling reality, which is that online illegal sales seem to enjoy better access to financial services in this country than le- than licensed than licensed operators who can't even get bank accounts at you know most of the chartered uh, banks. So here we've got in any place you look online the opportunity to have illicit cannabis delivered to your door utilizing you know the interact uh, backbone or financial services backbone which is obviously related to the related to the bank. So this is a this is an example of what we would say also represents kind of unequal regulation. We can't even like hardly give away a, in our industry like hardly give away a hoodie and um you know, emblazoned with the 5% of it emblazoned with a logo. Um, and alongside us in our the same communities where we're seeking to sell products, uh, uh, illicit operators are there online, uh, practically, uh, uh, seemingly with uh, immunity. Yeah, so there's a few kind of backwards things here, right? Um, you know, EDC doesn't support, for example, even you know, the export markets for medical cannabis, which, you know, in places like Germany, for example, um, you know, it's perfectly legal, but there's no support there. Um, And we have these uh, disparities uh, between what the legal market can do uh, and what, of course, the illegal market kind of has, you know, uh, free reign to do. Um, So, where where does the tolerance for that come from and and what's the best way to tackle it you know i think that um you know for me as a for me as a you know as a life as a lifelong participant in politics and with a fair number of uh seemingly friendly contacts in uh, official ottawa is it been a real uh, eye opener to see the extent to which the same government which has been you know, you know, so ad, uh, so advanced and offered so much leadership in the uh, legalization of adult use cannabis, but then seemingly kind of tur- kind of turtled on the initiative and didn't look for opportunities to align policies in other government departments in support of it, and I. I have to say is some of it's left me a little bit mystified, especially I think, like, frankly, to be honest with you, from a political standpoint, on some of the social progress fronts, especially if you look at the extent to which social initiatives lead the way in the context of the uh, reason for legalization in the United States. But here are efforts at pardon or expungement. Um, we're still taxing medicinal, we're taxing medicinal cannabis. Um, uh, you know, we've been really not done a good job on the encouragement and participation of diverse communities, of indigenous communities and all and, and the like. I, areas where uh, this government's uh, pretty proactive, it surprised me a bit. So this is the breakthrough in a certain sense that we need that we need to that we need to make. And that's why I believe so firmly that actually the stigma still exists and it needs to be broken down. And a lot of that is that the relationship with member of parliament level. So I go back to the point that I was making a while ago as I really feel 
That's a critical element. During the course of this kind of 18 months during which Health Canada is to uh, present, you know, develop and then present a report to the Parliament and to, to both, uh, uh, both the Senate and the House, um, that is our opportunity to make sure that that constituency, in this case, of parliamentarians is uh, better informed about uh, our sector and its local impact uh, by the time Health Canada comes a-calling with their report. Now, some of the items you mentioned, I noticed, were on the seven-point checklist uh, for for voters you know, interested in cannabis. Did we hear much of anything on the campaign trails during the most recent federal election? I don't know if it's appropriate to say this, Jody, but you know, I was a little bit shocked one day to be watching the news and see the leader of the uh, official opposition commenting on, in a, I think, on a press scrum in Toronto on a question about poppers, and really seeing cannabis hardly come up at all in the context of the uh, of the election. A few passing, uh, uh, positive passing references in NDP and Green Party uh, platforms and really hardly an, hardly an utterance otherwise. Now, some people took umbrage at that, of, at, the, at that, and uh, like, you know, look at the impact that we've made in a short period of time, signature initiative of the current government, shouldn't there be more said about it? And I do, I do kind of align with that sentiment on the one hand. On the other hand, in the um, environment in which we were operating, I was, you know, on the, uh, sometimes feeling thankful that we weren't in the mix for fear of, uh, <laughs> you know, for fear of uh, what direction it might, uh, what direction it might go. But I think that um, that lack of attention in the context of election platform is kind of aligned with the reality of where our industry sits in official Ottawa. So taking a step back, what is sort of the big opportunity with cannabis. I mean, we're the first country to legalize cannabis, but I think we're all kind of keeping an eye on what the United States is going to do. And while, you know, it's hard to read the tea leaves in the States as to whether it's uh, going to be legal, you know, tomorrow, within the year, within, you know, three years, it definitely has that feeling. It's a question of when, not if. So, so, before the United States legalizes and before other jurisdictions legalize uh, cannabis for, for recreational purposes, what, what is the opportunity here for Canada to seize? I almost feel like I wish we could shift the word and start over again and say cannabinoid instead of cannabis. Because mm-hmm. cannabis, in, in my opinion, cannabis informs the word, informs the THC concept when it might be that the bigger uh, global market um, is on the CBD side of the equation. And in a certain way, this is the bigger, this is an even bigger part of the challenge that we have is that a government which in, which invested significant, obviously significant political capital and all of the energy that comes with that of developing such a significant piece of legislation that involved all the provinces and the territories, et cetera. It's, it's an exhausting, it's, it's an exhausting process. And in a certain sense, then COVID came along and there's no energy left for the rest of the agenda. And I think that's in a certain sense, the biggest part of the problem that we have is the risk that we're, that, you know, that, that they run out of, you know, that they're out of energy for this. Oh, cannabis. Yeah. We did that in 2018. We're on to other things by now. 
Meanwhile, the global cannabinoid market is expanding rapidly. And for Canada, as a country with a very, very good reputation for the quality of its products and for uh, the, the safety and the strength of the regulatory environment, we're always going to have an opportunity to be a, a first product into markets if we play our hand well. And Jody, there will be countries in the world where they create a regulatory regime where they allow only CBD-based hemp products, but where they won't grow the hemp and where there will always be an opportunity for Canada to send products in there. So we need to be looking at exports in that context, the cannabinoid context, not just the opportunity that might be there around supplying adult recreational marketplaces as they, you know, as they emerge, uh, as they emerge globally. The U.S. dynamic, I don't know. That's complicated. But I'll say this, as, a, as an Ontarian, um, you know, I'm not really looking forward to the day, and it's not going to be very far from now, when I'm standing on the Niagara Falls, Ontario side of the bridge, looking across at Justin Bieber, welcoming people into a consumption facility in Niagara Falls, New York, because in a way, we're we we went first but first mover advantage is only an advantage if you continue to move and evolve and bring energy and we possibly haven't and i think that that we're going to see very very interesting circumstances emerge across borders even as a big state like new york with so much border uh and population impact on Canada, uh, that's going to be very interesting to watch. Uh, and, and, and I do worry about some of the implications. Yeah, I do too. Mostly because I think we have some good jobs here in Canada. I think we can be a leader in regulating cannabinoids for public health purposes. Um, so, so, so there's that kind of big picture global context where we can actually show people how to do this well and set the template for it. Um, but I also think about it uh, in terms of um, the medical opportunity too. In some ways, the, the, the medical opportunity related to CBD that you just mentioned, you know, it's really been kind of drowned out by the regulations that treat it like a recreational product. And I'm not sure how to really disrupt that, that, that logjam. I think you're right. I think going to MPs is definitely a part of it. Um, but, you know, it, it, it seems really intransigent at this point. The whole, uh, you know, the CBD environment with you know, especially it's like, again, as a Canadian that's traveled to the, you know, it's this U.S. market and border influence. Um, you know, the obviously it seems like of late the FDA has been trying to put a little bit of toothpaste back in the tube with respect to uh, uh, CBD from uh, uh, from hemp, which is so ubiquitous in the uh, in the U.S. But of course, lots of people are accessing products uh, from there via online channels and the and the like. Well. Here we know that Health Canada has been uh, working on uh, on uh, policies and has uh, struck 
expert working groups around uh, regulation of uh, cannabis uh, products for um, medicinal purposes. Uh, there, there are other folks working on, uh, you know, policies that would try to see CBD in very low dose formulas uh, emerge uh, more in a consumer health product channel. Um, there are any number of avenues available, but uh, it really requires uh, attention and energy at the regulator uh, at the regulator's level. And the influence that we've been speaking of about the possibility that these value-added Canadian agricultural products could not just be consumed by uh, Canadians, but actually could be, you know, helping to uh, meet this massive global expanding uh, market. That's not really on anyone's. Uh, that's not really on anyone's radar screen. Um, I know that sounds a little a little off-putting, but um, it it really isn't part of because we were speaking earlier about how Health Canada will say it's not really our it's not our it's not our we don't have an economic lens for things. So as we go to try and talk to I said you know or or uh, other uh, economically motivated departments. Uh, there's scant enthusiasm for the cannabis jobs agenda and the export of these high value added products. I would say we've been pushing Health Canada in particular because they have to issue export permits to try and improve their processes. And they were at one time world leading, but new exporting countries like Israel and Australia, uh, just as a couple of examples, start to be competitive with us. And we tried to say, you know, within Health Canada, as a matter of administrative priority, a few more people working in the export permitting branch uh, could certainly uh, could certainly assist competitiveness. These are very, very hardworking and uh, and well-respected uh, civil servants. I want to reinforce that, but we, we, we'd wish that area had just a few more of them would enhance the prospects for the export of these high-value added Canadian products. So sometimes we need a regulation. Sometimes we need something in legislation and sometimes we just need an administrative alteration within a department to put a little bit more emphasis in one area. And with respect to exports, even today, there's opportunities to do better and to try and underpin more of the jobs that we've created so far. And Jody, one more thing I would say is I've been really impressed with the number of smaller companies that have actually found really interesting export opportunities. And that's that that surprised me. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, uh, but they're doing that without the typical range of supports that governments offer through EDC and BDC uh, that offer typically to small businesses. And that could be improved again with just, you know, relatively modest administrative adjustment in attitude and policy. <laughs> well, fascinating. OK, I'm going to change gears a little bit. You wrote an autobiography, Unconventional Candor. Uh, why did you Why did you write it? Well, I wrote it. It's not the right answer in a sense. I wrote it because I I wrote it because I could. <laughs> I, I I knew I had it in me, um, the content that is. But I personally, well, you know, Jody, you know my background. I I've written a lot of four and five page memos, but um, I didn't go to university. I don't have a deep background in. That, that led me to, you know, write expansively, et cetera. So I didn't personally enjoy the confidence 
but of of course I knew that I I I had a kind of a unique story and things that I thought should be put on the record and a few you know a few elements of the record that I, I that I that I wanted people to 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 know about but um you know I really have to say like a very special person in my life is Ian Urquhart uh who was a who was a journalist uh when I first uh, met him and a senior editor at the Toronto Star and stuff but in st- such but in retirement um, you know, he offered me the, the, the love that is the time that comes with writing a book that practically nobody's going to buy and not that many people are going to read. So really I have to say, you know, that's, that's kind of my complicated answer, but you know, I had a very unique story is not, not, not everyone, uh, you know, not everyone with my, with my roots gets the opportunity to play kind of the interesting hand that I have in a variety of different things. So I felt really privileged to be able to put that uh, to be able to put that on the record. Have you heard from people about the significance of that? Just you know, seeing you in the Ontario Legislature and being open, because of course there were, I'm sure, uh, MLAs who uh, who were gay, but obviously were not open about it. Well, I I always like to say I was the first openly gay MPP in Ontario's history, or the 200. <laughs> um, and I personally knew several of them and some were, some were serving with me in my co- in within the caucus that I entered. So in a certain sense, I'm just lucky. I'm just lucky because, uh, probably somebody else, uh, probably somebody else could have, um, could have done it. A lot of credit has to be given to Dalton McGinty because, uh, I don't think he really gets full due for what a contributor he was to kind of social progress and, and such, but in his government, gay people within the Ontario public service and there's 60,000 employees there or something. So there's going to be a more than a handful of uh, more than a handful of gay people. You know, they, they didn't, they felt the, they felt the comfort to come out. And my presence was of course, uh, was of course part of that. I think that the kind of the funny or I don't know, ironic or unique part about it is, is that I, is that my presence helped to create quite a bit of the condition that made Kathleen very successful, in my opinion. Um, but sadly, like our, her and my relationship really didn't, uh, you know, really didn't exactly, uh, you know, re- really uh, suffered some, uh, suffered somewhat. Let's say so. That you know, I think that's one, uh, that's one aspect of it. But yeah, that's the exciting part about being as old as I am is that I could be attached to. Uh, the more distant elements of uh, history. I can remember, I'm just old enough to remember those first pride events in Toronto when it started to go from being a few thousand people to, you know, really, really significant crowds and all that. What does that tell you about social change? Any personal reflections on that? I guess I, I guess I always, I always gave a lot of credit. I always bowed down to the charter, the charter in a sense, because um, versus some of the struggles for social progress in other seemingly enlightened places, but where their model of law and constitutional frameworks, etc., makes progress makes progress more difficult and actually makes the progress uh, uncertain going forward. Looking at you know abortion rights access in Texas or so many other United States and voting rights and just 
all of these all of these heartbreaks. So I think that you know in a way the 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 social progress that was possible I think a significant amount of it in our country is was framed by Pierre Trudeau both in terms of diversity and um I think the contra- the, the kind of twin contributions of diversity which you know maybe an offshoot of multiculturalism and listen there's more learned people than me but in my construct it's kind of i always thought that diversity just says uh to me uh hey we're all especially as a downtown urban dweller like we're all in (laughs) we're all in this you know kind of reinforces the idea that we're all in it together and the the and the charter uh you know gives opportunity to uh uh, reflect on distinctions amongst us, et cetera. So I, I, I just think that a lot of that progress to me, I credit to, uh, the roots of, um, Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Trudeau, the senior. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I noted in, uh, in rereading, uh, your book, you were talking about how as minister of health, you can donate blood, but just recently Canada blood services announced that there are two pilots happening, one in Calgary and one, uh, in London, Ontario, focused on the donation of plasma. But, you know, I was reading the stories and it's like, okay, you know, baby step for sure. But nice to finally see some progress on this file. <sighs> well, Jody, justice delayed is justice denied. So when I looked at the, so yes, like, okay, I saw, I saw those pilots also. And I see that the guy from Canadian Blood Services is the same guy that was there when I was the Minister of Health. And I asked myself when I saw that policy with its very cautious drop back in 60 days to make sure you're still standing. I don't even know what that was for exactly, but it's to make sure you're still standing and that we've quadruple tested the product or something that you haven't that you haven't zero converted to HIV positive, I guess, is the is is the reason for the time lapse. something like that. I really wonder where the science is in 2021 that makes that possible that that same that that same baby step pilot couldn't have been done in 2004 so now it's like yeah well there's a big demand for plasma you know like so i okay i want to see the progress there but really it's it makes me that that makes me heartsick and i i can't tell anyone like it's in you to give i think they've stopped using that as their ad jangle or whatever that word is jingle but every time I heard that was like an was like a knife in my back. And I, I, I felt like I really let the community down that as a minister of health in Ontario, where Ontario's one of the votes at the annual general meeting of Canadian blood services, where I put notable gay activist lawyer on the Canadian blood service board with, you know, all the knowledge and background on this issue that it has moved so slowly. But on the other hand, I want to say I'm excited about the prospect that the many, 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 many thousands of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of LGBTQ identifying, you know, or whatever people that have been, you know, subjected to the limitation of being able to give, that they'll be there and lining up because they're community oriented people and they'll want to contribute. So I, I, I do look forward to it. But to me, it's still very, very slow. And I, I personally think, you know, I talked to Alan Rock about it, Jody, and I said, you know, if you, Alan, if you and I had had our had our timing as ministers of health aligned just a little bit better, 
maybe that's something that we actually could have made swifter movement on because I think that I don't think that this is moving at the rate of science. Okay. I don't. No, that's, that's, that's incredibly fair. And it's the other side of social change, right? You know, uh, some things can move so quickly uh, while others, you know, there just seems to be a lot of foot dragging and it's hard to spot the rationale, right? It's hard to understand the, the, the why of those things. And I guess you just kind of keep pushing forward. You know, I, 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 you come to know the why of it also as a minister of health, you know, you, you deal with the issues of the Creever commission and the investigation into the tainted blood crisis. And you know, you know, some of the people and attend the funerals of people who pass from it too. So it's, it's not like you're, it's not like you're, you know, not in a sense, well, uh, the the good news is that, um, or I just would want everybody to know is that, uh, I, I have a very clear, I have, I have a very clear picture on that whole, uh, sad, you know, the, 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 this is, this is the impact of one of the, you know, a a gut, gut wrenching and, you know, heartbreaking, uh, piece of Canadian history. And I've known, I've known some of the people who suffered with their lives. So I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of that aspect of it too. What are you most proud of from your time in uh, politics? Um, lots to choose from. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say Regent park. It's not, it's, it's probably not the kind of answer that people were looking for. I I'm just, I'm proudest of community. I'm proudest that wherever I went, whatever I did, um, I tried to, I tried to, I tried to pump up the community side of the equation. If, if I look at, you know, in, no, you know, like when you're a minister of, uh, well, maybe, maybe this is just my fate. Like, um, my five years and $200 billion of expenditures at the ministry of health is reduced to a billion dollars of spending on e-health and 680 million on, uh, on, you know, orange. And, you know, in my book, I try to talk, you know, as openly as I can about those things, uh, whenever, uh, and, lost in lost in all of that was that i really think that paul martin and dalton mcginty saved medicare and i know it's performance lags in in many ways and some of the things that we banged away at for all those years like surgical wait times and stuff are suffering so badly now and I, i i do get those frailties but had um uh romano and martin and the well minded public oriented person Dalton McGinty not been in the same places at the same time. I think that the fate of Medicare in the largest, most pop, you know, in the most populous part of Canada really would have brought into been brought into question. Now, till we have a new home finished in Toronto, May 3rd coming coming year, Bloor in Parliament, 26th floor, here we come. We've been living uh, practically on the shores of Georgian Bay, not too far from Wasaga Beach. And um, up here, I get to see community health centers that uh, are playing a huge role and that were part of a doubling of community health centers that I led as Minister of Health. Uh, 
on Dalton McGinty, you know, in the privileged service under Dalton McGinty. And these are the things, this, these, these are the examples of things that uh, really uh, stick with me, the stick with me the most. Yeah. Community. Cause I learned all of my best life lessons in life from community, like the Regent park community health center that taught me m many of the most important lines about community succession and about the necessity of, making sure that jobs and communities go to the people that are, that, that the people that are living within the communities have the opportunity, you know, in challenging communities have the opportunities for the jobs that you can't just ship in all of the teachers and such that you have to create the educational outcomes so that people in those communities, that's pathways to education that started in Regent Park. I was involved in packing the first hundred knapsacks, uh, backpacks full of school supplies. That was one of the very first things. And, I got money from the five banks. So I was there at the roots of a lot of that stuff. That's why I said Regent Park. That place taught me all of the most important lessons in my life, I think. I mean, it's one of the scarier things related to uh, throwing your hat into the political ring is to be misunderstood. But increasingly, as of late, um, also physical harms, right? Uh, uh, you know, in the UK, an MP stabbed, died, uh, the prime minister having gravel thrown at him, um, and just the mental toll of, of that, you know, mental harms are, are real as well. And, you know, from, from trolls and, and, you know, horrible hate-filled graffiti, you know, what, what's your perspective? I mean, you, you've spent so much of your life engaged in politics and, you know, how, how do we, how do we change the trend line on this oh i don't know how you change the trend line but uh what family you know i always tell people like i i, I practice politics best as a bachelor you know it's like mm -hmm. no one had to ask him he's like oh is he free yeah he's free he's <laughs> like absolutely <laughs> sunday what time mm -hmm. yeah he can do it saturday friday night uh-huh sure love it uh then I then I had a spouse in the equation and it was really tough to, uh, in a sense, to fit him in. The other thing that occurred is we were living in Cabbage Town in a beautiful house with single pane glass from 100 years ago. And I had one very agitated, like lots of gay politicians and women in particular, women Gay politicians and women politicians in particular are subjected to the nastiest streams of hate mail. But for people like Kyle Ray as an early out gay person and myself, to some extent, quite a bit of hateful correspondence. I operated in life taking the view that I was you, I was the greatest risk to myself and being a bit fearless in a sense, like not worried about an alley or a booze can or any other circumstances. That's not all good judgment. I'm not bragging about it. But as a married person, we had a gentleman, a man whose mother had not had a good outcome in a long-term care home environment. And he'd taken that to another level and was basically tailing me around and then sending correspondence I sat outside your house the other day. I saw this and I saw that. So the OPP, you know, they came and they looked at your house and said, well, you should do this, that, and the other. And so we moved to a condo. Now that's like 20, you know, that's getting to be a while ago now. And 
I didn't have kids then or anything. So the implication of it is who the heck, like I love retail politics. I love standing in front of a subway station. Now you got to be ready for rejection. Okay. Like there is an emotional toll with politics. If you can't handle rejection, please don't come, come campaigning in a place where a hundred people every eight minutes are walking past you. Cause you're going to get a, you know, you're going to get a, a mixed, uh, you're going to get a mixed response, et cetera. But being fearful about somebody running up behind you with a knife, I never, you know, maybe a person that was dealing with a mental health challenge, of course, you need to be aware in some challenging environments. Yes. And you come to know your community and even the people that are maybe street involved, you, you, those are part of your risk assessment. But this, this, this is, um, this is, uh, this is just, I mean, the practical implication on what this is going to do is it's going to suffocate. Is it going to contribute to the suffocation of democracy? So I believe strenuously as a former film processing retailer at church and Wellesley in the days before the digital age, when people really had to trust you with their stuff, um, that I really saw the strength of those relationships. That's why I love the retail politics and the retail canvassing that every election you needed to go out and press that flesh. That's how you renewed your, that's actually how you renewed your mandate, not just with the vote count at the ballot box. Who's going to, you know, this, this is going to create every excuse for people not to do that. And then everyone's going to say, Oh, you know, they're all, they're all entirely in the bubble. Well, I'm not going to step out of a bubble if people are going to whip gravel. Yeah. I know. I, it's, uh, you know, it re- it really bothers me because a, I mean, I obviously feel for all the people, regardless of their political party, who have to endure this. But I also do worry about the health of our democracy. Like, how yep. do you how do you get good people to to run when when we treat them like crap? Yeah, no, it's it's definitely uh, it's you know to me that's definitely the the definitely the harm and just the sadness also of. Well, there's no, there's no, there's no reason, there's no in way in which you can justify it. But when you look at a pic, when you look at a picture, especially kind of focusing in on the gravel throwing incident, it's like there, 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 there are so many people implicated in that. Just the judgment of people to be that, uh, you know, to be that off their conscience, um, it's. It's, it is really, uh, it is really a frightening, uh, it is really a frightening scenario. And I I think it's a very harmful prospect for democracy. I really, I I do take your point. And I, I I don't instantly, I'm not instantly, you know, I like to think, well, let's do these three things, head us, head us in the right direction. But I think that this is, um, uh, this is a big challenge. I don't, uh, uh, I don't have any, uh, I don't have any simple solutions for it. No. So this is the at-risk podcast. So in closing, I wanted to ask you, you know, what are what are your thoughts on risk? I mean, you've taken, you know, you've taken on big jobs. You have battled stigma your whole life. You've you've had tragedy in in your family. What 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 are your reflections on, on risk? And and not necessarily advice for for other people, but but. but what what are your personal lessons learned uh, in the event that other people can can see themselves in your struggle and in your success? I don't 
<laughs> I don't, I don't know. Um, I just would say, I don't know if openness and risk are the same thing, but sometimes when I think about risk, it was the risk of putting something facing something in the open and all i know all i know for sure in life is that in the toughest in the toughest things that i've had to in the toughest things that i've had to con, that i've had to confront addiction death by you know death by suicide uh coming out as a gay person losing an election to rob ford which is definitely in my trauma count like i don't i don't i had to do a hundred all candidate meetings with that man and people are like oh come on i was like oh, I was like, oh please for real these are not these are not nice people that was not a nice <laughs> that was not a nice movement i was uh i was facing and i was very isolated in it despite the despite the uh despite seeming otherwise i i just think that um I, I think take a risk, take a risk on, I think that I've taken risks that from a physical uh, harm standpoint, really, I wouldn't, I really wouldn't advise. Now I'm dealing with the fact that I like, I stopped riding snowmobiles when I had kids because I like to go too fast on them. Now I got a 12 year old, nearly 13 year old boy, and we have 60 acres of trails out our back door. Now I'm trying to deal with those kind of mitigation of risks. But I would say that in the in the sense of in the sense of risk i would say take the risk that openness is going to lead you that there's more capability than you know to respond and to and and to deal with it so in though in that sense of of openness and like to and the risk of coming out and the judgment that i've offered to like the encouragement that i've offered to people so you know, frequently about the liberation that comes from it, uh, uh, etc. I think, you know, I've always been, I feel that I've been rewarded. I feel that I've been rewarded for those things. George Smitherman, thank you for being my friend. And thank you for being really fearless and authentic in a way that very few people are. Oh, well, authenticity is everything at the end of the day, Jody. So that means the world to me. And thanks for being, thanks for being my friend too, and for having me on your podcast.